This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 305. And the quote of the day is, change the way you look at things, and the things you look at change. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, session 305 of the podcast. Hope everybody's doing well. Hey, listen, there are 300 of these episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, all that fun stuff, but it's only the most recent 300. The other ones, if you want to go uh, to like the, you know, number one, number two, number three, all that stuff, you have to go to drummersresource.com to get those only because that's just the way that iTunes works and all of these other platforms. So, if you go to Drummer's Resource, be sure to sign up for the mailing list and you will get a Monday email with a bunch of things I call Nick's Monday Mix. It's the latest releases, but also it'll be some different links, some different things that I'm digging, some industry news, stuff like that. Friday, you'll get the That's a Wrap email, wraps up everything that we released this week. And also you'll get a free copy of my ebook, Stick Control Variations, which is 11 creative exercises to help you with your groove, your chops, your independence, your speed, all that kind of stuff. So all that free at drummersresource.com. And also, not free, but if you want to save some bread, you can go to Casio Music, C-A-S-C-I-O Music.com and use the promo code POD20, P-O-D-20. It saves you 20% over any order over 149. There's a couple of restrictions, but that's just the nature of the beast of how that works. But they have been in business for over 70 years. Why? Because they get the right instrument in your hands at the right price, and they serve the musician community so well. You can go to casiomusic.com, use the promo code POD20 to save 20%, or you can just give them a call as well. So check them out, Casio Music, C-A-S-C-I-O, music.com. So I want to get into this conversation today with Jose Pasillas, and Jose is the drummer from Incubus. I have been a big fan for Incubus. I mean, ever since they they came out, I've been a fan of Incubus. So for those of you who don't know, they are a mega band. They've sold millions and millions and millions of records. They just released their most recent record called Incubus 8, and they're actually on tour right now promoting the new record. And this is a great conversation. We talk about how they built the band from nothing to this huge band, but then we talk about the changing industry. We we talk about different ways of approaching things because he's been playing the same tunes for you know 20 years and just a really insightful conversation about where things are going and his perspective on all of those and just a good time to, to chat with him because of like I said the state of the industry they're out now promoting a new record and plus I'm just a fan he's a great drummer and uh, like I said big fan of Incubus so I'm extremely honored to have him on the show a big thanks to the guys at DW for connecting Jose and I. And without further ado, let's get into it with the one and only Jose Pasillas. Jose, I, I feel like I should say welcome back to the podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> we're, uh, we're this is this is Again. round two. I'm I'm excited that we have have some more time to chat. Um, so now that we 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 thought we initially had a short amount of time, but now I want to I want to first start with like quick backstory. I mean, so you're in Incubus, obviously you've been there since the beginning. Um, but I I like the story of the fact that you started playing drums what in '90 
and by in 91 you were already starting a band yeah i mean i mean that that was pretty much the story for the whole band you know we we kind of grew up together and started playing our instruments relatively at the same time and this was our first band and pretty much <laughs> for 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 me mike and brandon it's been the only band we've we've been in for a good 20 going on 27 years that's insane i mean because normally it's like you start yeah. pl- you start playing and there are you know there's different carnations of different bands you lose you, you know you get into this one you quit you you know you move on to the next one i mean what do you think was the what do you think was really the key to you guys coming out of the gate and really make i mean because you started in 91 what year did what year did fungus among us come out was that 95 yeah we put out fungus among us independently in 95 um and that's pretty much just a collection of demos um, mm-hmm. that we did uh, over the c- couple years previous to that. But, um, you know, we don't know anything different. I mean, the story that we get from 99% of the world out there is they've been, you know, all the musicians we've met, they've been in many different bands or incarnations of the band. Sure. Um, you know, and many different projects. And we sort of have that same, uh, some of the same similarities where there's a couple of members that weren't original. And we've all sort of worked on different projects outside of this band, but for you know the most part, this has been our main focus has been this one band. So, what what you know led to that, I really can't tell you. Other than you know we're still friends, we still love to do what we love to do passionately, which is writing music and touring. Right. Um, so I, I think I think us just sort of getting through the tumultuous times of our 20s and 30s and kind of seeing the other side has mm-hmm. really put an appreciation on what we do. So, um, you know, we're, we're grateful. We're definitely grateful. We know most people don't get to do this and most bands don't survive this long. So yeah, just, you know, a more a more bigger picture, objective point of view, we're, we're more appreciative now. But, you know, we did, we did have, you know, all, all the crazy tumultuous times within the band too, inner term, turmoil, which... Most bands break up during those times. Yeah, we've seen our way through that. So um, we're very lucky. You know, I feel very fortunate to be still be in love with my band, with my bandmates, and with what I do. Hey, man! Full disclosure: I'm a fan, so I'm glad you guys are still putting out music. So uh, let's. I'm just gonna. <laughs> right, I, I want to. I just want to put that on the record now. Um, so, so what is it that that's the hardest part of of being in a band for you know for 20 years, especially with you guys? I mean, is it the fact that you started just as friends, and you know, for lack of a better word, you guys became famous, and there's you know there's more money on the line, and there's more demands of the of the job. Is that is that part of it that that really gets stressful? I mean, a little bit. Yes, it it is, it is a business. You know, it's like mm-hmm, we've, of course. we've built the business 26 years and we treat it as such as well, you know. Um, but we definitely we definitely give ourselves space and room um, and time in between touring and records and stuff like that. And the business is continuing to go, you know, like as we take time off, I mean, we still have overhead, <laughs> you know right. what I mean? So the business never ceases to function but um you know i think i think we just we kind of know how how each other works and what makes us tick and we know that time is essential for us to continue to do this mm-hmm. um i think the hardest part for us to get to your question is probably the writing process mm-hmm. because we've done so many records and we've written so many songs and we're always trying to push that boundary and not repeat ourselves and just 
and, and sort of reinvent ourselves with every record we put out. So right. I think that's the hardest part. And with each record that we're putting out, as time goes on, we take more and more time with it because it just becomes that much more difficult to put something out that moves you, that interests you, and that's fresh and new to you. Um, so I, I, for me personally, I, I'd say the, the, writing, the writing part of, you know, music is the most difficult part. Mm-hmm. And, you know, touring, touring, a lot of people say that touring is the hardest part because you're away from family, you're stuck on a bus, and all of that is true. Um, but, you know, it's like I, I love playing shows, and we don't go out for 18 months at a time. You know what I mean? Right. We go out for a month, we take a little bit, a couple weeks off, then kind of repeat that pattern, which is sustainable. Sure. Uh, going for 24 months, 19 months, 18 months, which is what we did on record cycles in the past. That's brutal. That's not sustainable now for us, now that we're kind of in our 40s. Right. So, um, you know, we've kind of just found a rhythm that works for us. And we're, you know, we're pretty, we're pretty good with respecting each other and, and knowing, you know, when to go, when to stop, when to give each other space. So, you know, it's, it's very much a relationship, you know, yeah. it's multiple partners you know, <laughs> with a bunch of dudes on more, a bus. <laughs> yeah. It makes it that much more complicated. But again, you know, it's like, we've been at it for so long that we've kind of gotten good at doing that. Mm-hmm. So what song are you sick of playing? <laughs> there has to be one. Uh, you know, Drive is a song that is just, you know, that's that's kind of a mainstay to any set we do for the right. most part. Um, so I, it's funny because for me, I kind of treat each night that I perform as like, it's kind of a goal to like look at each song individually, <laughs> just play that song. I mean, yes, there is a little bit of, you know, autopilot that happens, but for the most part, like, each night I'm trying to I'm trying to really conquer each song that we're playing. Right. Um, Drive is pretty straightforward, and we've actually um, changed it a little bit this this summer, and I'm sure we'll continue throughout the rest of this record cycle where we're playing it completely live. Where we used to play to the you know the drum loop that's in the original recording, mm-hmm. um, but we sort of played it where I'm just playing the entire beat instead of playing on top of a a, a loop, and right. it just kind of gives it a, a, a fresh feel. Like it has this bounce to it. Sure. And um, so we, we do things like that, two songs that we feel, you know, need a little revamping or just need a little fresh blood in it, you mm-hmm. know? So, um, you know, that's, that's, nothing, that's nothing that's abnormal for us to do. Right. Um, but, but, you know, any of the songs we've been playing for the last 20 years, you know? So a lot of the stuff on science, part of me, uh, which is just a really fun song. It's not as, you know... Um, as straightforward as drive, um, any of the singles really, but, um, but you know, they're still, we, we kind of, we kind of try to find ways to reinvent those songs. Sure. It's tough, man, playing something for 26, 27 years. Yeah. I, I was just at, uh, I was just at the Chili Peppers show and was hanging out with Chad and, you know, we were talking about Under the Bridge and we, we were actually just talking about the tune, but then they went up and they played it and I was like, man, they've been playing this song for, I mean, 30 years. Yeah. You know? Like yeah. that song's been I mean, that song's been around for so long. And I was I was thinking about I wonder at what point they got tired. And it's not, I mean, it's a great song and like everybody loves it's it's fine, but after a while it just has to you know, it has to get old. But I like the idea of like you said, okay, let's put a, a little bit of a fresh approach on it and and I think Chad does that too. I think he kind of mixes it up a little bit and and you got to. Yeah, you he never he never really stays 
you know, too true to the recording. Like, you know, he, he's, he's, he's having fun up there. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's the, that's the thing that I love about playing music is that it's elastic and you don't have to be so rigid. You know, I know mm-hmm. I'm not, <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah, yeah. a lot of times I don't even know what I recorded. I'm just sort of like, it kind of takes on a life of its own, which is the beauty of, you know, taking a recording and bringing it to life. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm sure I'm, I know he does that too. A lot of musicians do that. That's that's how that's how you're able to like do it for so long and still have fun doing it. You know, right, 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 right. So, who were some of your influences growing up? And the reason why I ask is because I mean, if you listen to if you listen, to, I mean, especially like if you listen to science, right? There's there's funk in there. There's there's all this pocket. There's metal. There's you know, then there's a DJ, so there's elements of hip hop in there. I mean, right? You know, like who who um, were you listening to when you were when you were coming up? Um, you know, the the band, the like, you know, the handful of bands that really inspired me to play drums um, were, you know, I I was a Led Zeppelin fan, fan obviously. You know, a lot of classic rock stuff. Mm-hmm. A queen, a fan of Queen. The Police. Stuart Copeland is one of my favorite all time drummers, and still to this day is, you know just as influential to me than, you know, than most any, uh, any drummer. And I'm sure you can you hear, you know, me ripping his stuff off on every single record that I've done. You right. Know? I think we um, all rip Stuart Copeland off one way or another. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure any, any, he's a drummer's drummer, you know, so yeah. that's, 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 that's kind of, that's kind of typical, but uh, I was, I was really into the alternative music that was coming out in the early nineties too. So Primus and Tim Alexander was another drummer that, to me, just, you know, I was just awe-inspired by his playing and how intricate and just how different it was sounding, not not just himself, too, but the music that Primus was putting out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then you know, the Soundgarden, the Range Against the Machines, and um, that coupled with a lot of the music I liked to listen to before, which was, you know, I listened to a lot of Fish, uh, mm-hmm. Carlos Santana. Uh, I was... Um, kind of all over the board with different genres of music too. Um, so everything and anything that inspired me drum drumming wise, I, I listened to. Right. And I would just sort of, you know, grow up listening to CDs on my headphones and just jamming along. Mm-hmm. Um, but those, those, those in particular, um, Chad Sexton from 311, what they were doing musically at the time too, with music and grassroots um, with something totally original to me. Mm-hmm. And him coming from his drum corps sort of background too was uh, something I never really heard of. Yeah, and he always used to have that like real tight snare, and you know, like you had that that tight yeah, piccolo really, snare. really tight snare. A lot of the double stroke stuff he was doing, and just you know how precise he really was, mm-hmm. and made it sound like it really flowed. You know, yeah. Um, so that 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 really grabbed my attention. You know, so mm-hmm. uh, it, it was really just uh, a lot of stuff uh, across the board. You know, and as Time went on. I started listening to uh, finding bands like Mongolian Orchestra um, in the mid to late '90s when we started going to Europe. Drum and bass uh, was something that was new to me too, and to me that was like jazz on steroids or turned up like 100 BPM. You right. Know? So like Ronnie Size and Represent, um, For Hero, um, and, and those two bands in particular too playing live they would because they you know a lot of most of the music is programmed music and programmed drum beats mm-hmm. but they would have a drummer playing all that stuff live which was absolutely incredible yeah it's not crazy great beats you know uh on steroids so that really just you know 
drew my attention and, and that made its way into songs like Pardon Me, um, Nowhere Fast from, uh, from our first record, Science and Make Yourself. Um, and you can kind of hear those influences a little bit more obviously in some of those earlier records. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and, and even to this day, like I still listen to my music mostly on shuffle and it kind of just goes all throughout my library music, which is what I love the most, you know, yeah. I like being surprised with what I'm listening to and listening to different things. Um, so, you know, it kind of, it kind of just goes um, across the board and, and, you know, I like, I like listening to, to some, you know, crazy drumming. Like there's, there's a band oceans eight Alaska and it's a British band and it's, um, it's a metalcore band. And I'm just blown away by some of the shit that these drummers are doing now. It's just, absolutely unreal you know these crazy blast beats yeah <laughs> it blows some of the stuff that people do just blows my mind yeah so and it's like it's like the like the dudes playing drums these days like we didn't have youtube in the back like i see 14 like these 13 14 15 year old kids playing stuff now that i'll never be able to do in my entire <laughs> life know. you know and it's like it's like you know we didn't have youtube you know breaking stuff down and just everything's so accessible now that you want to learn how to do something, no problem. You know, just you could do a little research on the computer and, and figure it out. Yeah. You know, to me, I was listening to CDs on my headphones and just guessing at what I was doing and, and just making stuff up on my own, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a different it's a different playing field these days, but still, it's still awe-inspiring, you know? I talk about the YouTube phenomenon a lot on the podcast and, you know, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, that's, that's sort of uh, a, a topic for another day. But the idea of the way that you learned years ago and the way that I learned was just sitting down and playing through an entire record. And the only thing I will say about the YouTube thing now is I, I think there's a lot of skipping over things because you can just flip to the next thing. But when you bought a record, like if you bought, you know, a fish record and you wanted to play through it, like if you were you know, 16, 17, 18 years old, you didn't have enough money to go out and buy 50 records or a hundred records. Right. You know, so you would buy the one and you're like, okay, I'm going to take whatever slip stitch and pass. And I'm going to like, you know, I'm going to play through that a thousand times. And I, so for you, what, and I know that you're self-taught. So what was, what do you think was, was sort of the key to you getting better? Cause I think that you got really good pretty quickly. Was it a matter of just playing along with records? Did you feel like you had some natural talent and you just had to sort of refine that skill or how did that go for you? Um, yeah, kind of all of it. Like for myself, I, I, I loved playing drums, you know, I was passionate from the moment I started. And even before I started, you know, I was listening to, um, the Ramones, Led Zeppelin. Those were some of my first records that I, that I went out and bought on my own, you know, before that I was just listening to music my parents listened to which they listened to really great stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was Prince in my house, and there was uh, Paul Simon, and uh, a lot of just music in general. But when I first started, like, going out and finding music on my own, I was, even before I started playing drums, the, the drums always stuck out to me. And I would always play air drums, you know? And I would sit on a chair in front of the mirror and emulate what the drummer was doing. And I can always make the distinction of the hi-hat, the kick drum, the snare, the cymbals, the toms. So after like a couple of years of that, it really looked like I was playing drums, you know? <laughs> um, and so I, I just, uh, even though I wasn't really cognizant of it at the time, I was meant to play drums. And right. when I was 15 and Mike brought over his stepdad's drum kit and I started playing from that point, um, I was just into it and played all the time. 
and I was very fortunate to have patient parents who let me play anytime I wanted and never told me not to play, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was pretty respectful. I never played early in the morning or late at night. So they didn't have a problem with it. And, you know, I, I felt very, you know, looking back, I felt very fortunate for that. But I was just, I wanted to learn everything that I was listening to. So I would listen to these records and I would just sort of emulate them, you know? And mm -hmm. even though I wasn't playing it note for note, I was getting just sort of the pattern or just the rhythm or, you know, the fill down as best as I could and just sort of implementing that, you know, in our music when that time came to start playing. And, 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 you know, listening to Rush was, you know, obviously it, that again, that's, he's a drummer's drummer mm -hmm. and playing like moving pictures. Like that was, that took me, that's, I've played that thing for years trying to figure it out. You know? <laughs> yeah, I still haven't and, figured it out. And, uh, <laughs> still trying to figure it out to this day, but it's like, you know, looking back at the records that I was playing to, it's like, that's some pretty heavy stuff, you know, yeah. drumming wise. So, so like I, over years and years and years of doing that, like, you know, I, I, and I always felt like it was in me and I had a natural ability to do that. So put all those things together and that was a pretty good recipe to, to being creative and making creative drum parts for the music I was writing with Incubus. Mm -hmm. So, it was kind of a combination of, of all those things, you know, some natural ability, um, having some uh, influences that were incredible influences, you know, in my opinion, and um, and just having a passion for it, you know. Mm -hmm. Was there a point where you decided, hey, this is exactly what I want to do. There's there's not going to be another path for me. Because I know that, I mean, you're an artist. I, I mean, a visual artist too. Um, so was there for you was there ever a deciding factor or were you just sort of like i'm i'm gonna take this you know as far as it lets me go and i'll i'll kind of play it by ear um in the beginning it was just a hobby the first probably two or three years you know that we were a band probably the first probably the first two years it was just you know we were having fun you know we mm -hmm. were 15 16 17 years old and i think when when we were ending coming to the near coming as we were nearing the end of high school, we really started thinking about it more seriously. And, and at that time, you know, we were just playing parties, you know, for friends in high school. And then these parties sort of grew to like hundreds of people. And then, you know, we started doing pay to play shows in the Valley at small clubs and bars. Like there's a club called Mancini's that was off of, I think, Winneka, deep in San Fernando Valley. Mm -hmm. And we would bring a few hundred kids there from high school. And then we started doing that on the strip too. You know, we started playing the whiskey, the Roxy and the Troubadour, which was sort of our mainstay of clubs for many years. And we would bring hundreds of kids. And so we only paid to play probably two times. And then the, each promoter was like, you're good. You know, we know that you're going to bring people. Right. So that sort of grew into, you know, hundreds of kids that we didn't know, like slowly our friends started to fade out and new kids started coming in and it was you know, after a couple of years of doing that, it was just all new faces. Mm -hmm. And so right around that time was like, we were nearing the end of high school and we were like, we would love to continue to do this and we'd love to get signed. And we've always had, we always had that short term goal, let's get signed and tour. And so we were like, you know, we'll graduate high school. We'll go to like, you know, our junior college nearby and, and wait till we get signed. That's going to happen. Like we were confident we were going to get signed. No problem. But it took two and a half years. You know? right. so it was, <laughs> It, you know, it, it, two and a half years after we graduated, we finally got signed. But right at that point, you know, it's like we quit school and we started touring at that point. And we were just that was what we were doing. We didn't really look too far ahead. 
you know, in the future, like where we're going to be in five years, but we knew in the next year we're going to be touring. And then when that time came up, we're going to be touring again. And throughout that entire time, we kept growing and building and building, get, getting better as musicians, playing in front of more people. And there was never a time when we were like, fuck, do we keep going? Right. It's just like, of course, we're going to keep there going. There was only the arrow was only pointing in one direction, right. which was keep going. Yeah. So, where do you guys sign to what? To Epic first? Yeah, we were with, um, well, first we signed to, they're all subsidiaries of Sony. So, first we okay. signed to Immortal Records, okay. uh, which is part of Epic, which is part of Sony. Uh, right. So, Immortal had Korn, um, another band, Far, but we were, we were just sort of enthralled with Korn at the time and what they were doing and just. You know, uh, we just sort of looked up to them. So going with that label with a big backing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, mothership, which is Sony, you know, we yeah. thought that, that was ideal for us. So we sure. were with Immortal. They ended up changing uh, labels. So we stayed with Epic, okay. which was, you know, still Sony. Yeah. So we were, we've been with Epic Sony for the past 16, 17 years. And just recently, as of three or four years ago, did we part from them? Okay. Um, and now, uh, now we're with Island. Um, but for the most of our, most of our career, we were with Sony. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Cause I, I know Steve Rennie, so I, I knew that, I know that he was at, uh, he was at Epic. I wasn't sure if that was the first place that you guys signed or not. So. Yeah, he was, he was with Epic when we first signed with them. He was sort of, uh, I think he was like VP of, of West Coast Sony. Mm -hmm. And when he left, um, like he was, he was the one signing our tour support checks at the time when we were touring, uh, in the late two thousand like two, like 96, 97, 98, 99. And that was right around the time when he left Sony. Um, and I think he was starting artist direct. Yeah. Um, and then soon thereafter, you know, uh, he, he wanted to manage us and we, you know, jumped on board with him mm. and he was with us for, you know, 15, 14, 15 years too. Right. Right. Uh, the, the one thing that we sort of, we, skipped over quickly was pay to play and let's talk about that for a minute explain that because there's that that doesn't happen everywhere uh you know it happens in la it happens to other other markets but for the people who are listening that that don't understand what it's like to be a musician in la explain the whole pay to play principle so basically you know we would go to say the whiskey the whiskey was one of the first places that we approached to pay to play and what they do is they sell they sell you like say a hundred tickets for like you know four or five bucks. So we had to come up with like five hundred bucks to buy a hundred tickets. Um, and the risk in that is like, can we get rid of a hundred tickets? Mm -hmm. And so because you can't return them, <laughs> go, go back. you can't return them. Once you buy them, they're yours. So what we would do is we would just sell them to our friends for you know like I don't know six bucks <laughs> you know yeah I think I think at first we just we just sold them for what we bought them for just to get people in there and we got rid of them in a heartbeat like super quick then we were like okay give us 200 tickets and so we would sell those no problem and and so at that point we were like we're not going to buy tickets anymore there's people coming they're like yeah we know you know, because we would work with the same promoters mm -hmm. um, at the clubs. And they're like, yeah, no problem. And they would just, you know, put us on and there would be three or 400 kids that came every time we played. And it was funny because we were playing with nothing but hair bands, uh, you know, at that time, which was like the mid to like mid 90s. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and and we would always play early, like at eight or nine. We were like the openers and there would be like 300 kids there. And it was funny because we would be up in the dressing room and. And the headlining acts, I, f 
I don't like, I forget the names of them, but uh, they would be like, dude, there's so many people here. Tonight's going to be amazing. And we would just kind of overhear them play and then we would play our show. And then the whole, the whole theater would just empty out. (laughs) All of our friends and all the high school kids would just flood out and they were left with like the 10 or 20 people that they were playing, you know? Um, But so it was just, that's a good feeling. Just sort of a no brainer. What's that? I said, that's a good feeling for you guys. Yeah, you know, and we would get we would get you know just sort of like really gnarly vibes from these guys too because here we are just you know some high schoolers playing these shows and they would just vibe us because we were playing like you know not hair metal music too and it was just sort of strange I think just in general but you know we were just doing our thing we didn't care what anyone thought we were just having a good time and and so it, it didn't take very long for all these promoters to be like no problem we'll put you on, on you know whatever night you want. And sure enough, you know, the people came. So, um, so that was pay to play. And fortunately we didn't have to, we didn't have to do that for too long. You know? mm-hmm. You're essentially your own promoter at that time. You, you know, you're taking, you're taking all the risk because I understand the concept of it. You know, the, the venue doesn't want to take on the responsibility of saying, Hey, we're going to book this band. If it's empty, we don't make any money and we have to rent to pay, you know? Yeah, they got, you know, they got, yeah, exactly. They got, they got, they got booze, you know, to, to pay for and lights and electricity and, you know, just all the, you know, yeah, they got rent, they got overhead. Yeah. So, you know, it it does, it does make sense. Um, Fortunately for us, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't a big issue for us. Yeah. And it's not, it doesn't happen a lot of places. I mean, even, so I'm originally from Philly and when we first started, same deal, we would do, it wasn't pay to play though. We would get tickets and we had to sell as many as we could, but then we could return whatever tickets were left over. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's pretty nice. (laughs) So we didn't buy, we didn't have to buy him. He, you know, the promoter would just say, "Here's all the tickets. Sell as many as you can, and then give me back the rest." But he's, you know, but he's taking on all the risk. But the the bands, you know, in L.A. it happens, and you know, it doesn't even really happen in New York that often. So I don't know. It's just an interesting concept concept that that happens in L.A. all the time. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, you know, I I kind of figured that that was sort of commonplace across the board, but that's, that's interesting to know, you know? Yeah. Um, but you know, it's like, you know, our, you're right. We are self-promoting and what we would do is we'd print, you know, a thousand flyers and we'd go to every high school and pass them out on all the cars, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and sure enough, a few hundred people would show up and it's, it sort of became like the weekend thing to do is go see Incubus at Troubadour, the Roxy or, you know, any place that we were playing in, uh, in LA. And, um, and we sort of just grew, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, so, and so we were bringing a thousand people and selling out the Troubadour and, you know, bringing, you know, five or 600 people to the Whiskey and Roxy selling those places out. And we kind of did that, you know, a couple times a month for a couple of years. And, and that's when, you know, label interest, interest started peaking, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, took a while, but, you know, we finally, we finally, you know, had a label to, to support us and do it for long term. Musicians Institute is the official education sponsor of Drummer's Resource, and they have ways that you can customize your learning experience through electives. And you can dig deeper into specialized areas of focus. You can do gospel drumming, New Orleans drumming, electronic, transcribing, hand drums, cajon, even Ableton Live. And these electives are taught by experts in the field who who have been there, done that, and are really masters at this. You can learn more about MI, their electives, and all the great programs they have by going to mi.e. 
If you're gigging or touring or always on the road, you need to keep your drumsticks at your side. And you can do that with Promark's No Premium Stick Bags. Each style adds convenience both on and off the stage. They have two kinds. The Transport Deluxe features ample stick storage, a metal hanging for tom mounts, and a leather interior pockets. While the Silver Essentials Bag features room for four pairs of sticks, a drum key pocket, and metal hooks to hang on the floor tom as well. These are made with durable, waterproof nylon, and synthetic leather. These bags are built to keep up with any drummer who's always heading to the next gig and you can learn more by going to promark.com now let's get back into it with jose pasillas so now you would mention that everyone in the band the the main objective was to get a deal right so and that was the time where i mean that was the big machine and you should hit your wagon to that big machine for tour support for for everything else if you if if things were if you were redoing it all now do you still see the importance of a band trying to go out and get a label or i mean now you guys are already established so it makes sense for you guys to be on a major label but if if you were doing it now do you think it's as important for a band to get signed to a label um i it's a totally different ball game now so i don't know i mean we were we were one of the last bands of that era where a label would sign a band um and it would be a developmental a, a developed deal a develop mm-hmm. how, how would you call it uh it's a development deal, they right? were interested in you de- yeah developing artist development deal right and during artist development deal where they were interested in you developing and maturing into, you know, a good band. Right. Uh, so they bring you into the studio, they pair you up with a good producer, they pair you up with management, they sort of... Yeah, well, they're looking long-term. Sure. In, in, in another record or two records, they're going to be writing great music and just, you know, being, you know, a good, solid, potentially, you know, obviously they, they got you know, a bottom line, they want, you know, they want to make money, but they they see potential and they give you the means to be able to go out and tour, to make records, to get your producers, all of that stuff. Where now, you know, they're not really interested in doing that. They want something that's already done. They want, mm-hmm. they want you to already have that established before coming in because there's no records to be sold these days, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, Nowadays, I don't know. I don't know what the right move would be. You know, I think I think there's so many good tools now, just with the internet, to promote yourself. Um, but it's such a competitive industry that I don't know what really would be the best route. You know, it's like we we even toyed after we parted with Sony. We even toyed with the idea of of just putting it out independently. Um, but you know, you got to build up a big team to do that. You know, yeah. and you need marketing, promotion, um, life, you know, you need to have places where you can get this and you need a team to do that and to put in that effort, you know, at the time we weren't really interested in doing that. Um, we, we, we could do that definitely. And we may do that in the future. Who knows? But we wanted a label that had all that established already and that, you know, was sort of plug and play, you know, we'll sure. put in the music and they'll do their part. And, you know, it, it, it seems like a really good matchup for us at this time. So that's what we decided to do. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I don't really know what, what the right way of doing it. it. You know, getting exposure, you know, is obviously kind of the goal. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you need a label for that. You right. know, it's like if you got access to the internet, that's kind of where everyone's watching, you know. So right. 
I, I don't really I don't really know. I don't know what we would do differently in this day and age if we were just a, a band starting out. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of tough. Sure. So, you know, I I think like you said, it, for you, it, it obviously makes sense. You guys have already you guys have already been going down that road. You know, you guys have been in that in that machine for for a long time. So that team is already in place. You're already set up. That's what you know. It's how that's you know it works. So. Yeah, let's stick with it. Uh, but I agree that now there's so many different channels and so many different outlets and so many ways that that younger bands or upcoming bands can take control of it uh, themselves. And I want to I want to tie in a, a question, maybe controversial, maybe not. But how do you feel about what's your thoughts on streaming and and that whole that whole debacle? Because I see I see both sides of the coin. I'm an artist, uh, so uh, you know I understand wanting to sell records, but I also run a business that's based online. So, uh, you know, at the same time, yeah. I, I see the benefits of it. I see reports of revenue, streaming revenues are going to be up 500% by 2030. They're, you know, Billboard just paid out its first billion dollars uh, ever in royalties, or not Billboard, uh, um, wow. BM, BMI said that they paid out a billion dollars in royalties, which is the, the most they've ever paid out in royalties. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. If if they're paying out that much, imagine how much they made. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? of course. Because streaming is, you get the least amount of money from streaming. You know, it's mm-hmm. not it's not very artist friendly, and it's a double edged sword. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's probably the best way to get your music out. And just like when piracy was a new thing, um, it's like yeah, it took money away from the artist, but it also got your music out there. And if you got your music being pirated and just sort of making waves because of that, that's a good thing. You're getting that exposure. Mm-hmm. But it just depends. For us, we are a touring band. That's where we. That's our bread and butter is touring. So the streaming doesn't affect us as much as someone who only makes money off of royalties and airplay. Right. So, you know, for us, it doesn't change the game that much for us. Um, because we make our money touring, you know, mm-hmm. and we've spent 25 years building up that foundation where, you know, we're confident that, you know, that's, that's sort of not, no one's going to be able to take that away from us, you know? Right. So that's um, always been sort of your bread and butter is touring. Yeah. It, it's always been our, our bread and butter mm-hmm. and we've sold a lot of records in the past, you know, probably mm-hmm. 20 million records, you know? And, and so that's because awesome. of that, we were, we were able to, you know, negotiate deals when we re-signed with Sony and just, it gave us, it gave us a lot of power, you know, um, but still the radio play was dwindling at the time and selling records was dwindling at the time. And so, you know, for us, that was still not a big means of, of us income wise. So streaming to me, it's like, Hopefully it, it becomes better, you know, as time goes on for the artist. Um, but it's just, it's the, like the billboard charts. It's so confusing now because now there's a consumption chart, which takes into account downloads, streams, um, you know, video play, just all of that stuff. And it, I think it's like, you know, depending on your deal, maybe, maybe a thousand or a few thousand streams to equal one, record sold you know what i mean it's just it's a different ball game now Mm -hmm. and i don't know if it's good or bad it's just it is what it is and it's just different than it was right so you know again it doesn't affect 
our bottom line very much, but I can see how, you know, it's just, it's not very favorable to artists in general. So it can, it can be sort of a bummer to a lot of those artists depending on that, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's, there's definitely pros and cons of it, you know, and it's, it's interesting yeah. how this, how everything is going to, is going to shake out. Definitely. Um, so, I mean, a stupid yeah. question would be, why doesn't, why can't, can every artist just say, no, we're not going to be on streaming. It's done. Like we're not going to be on Spotify or any other streaming uh, platform. I, man, I, I guess so. I, I, I don't know. I mean, that again, is it, there's a, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. You know, you can risk, losing any airplay and getting your music out anywhere if you were to do that. Right. You know what I mean? Right. You would have to be solely, de- it would solely be dependent on the fans that you have and them spreading it, you know, or mm-hmm. if you've got your own little machine to go out and promote your music. But I mean, that's it. Taking that away would be a pretty ballsy move, you yeah. know? Um, yeah, yeah. And I don't, I don't know how many, how many are, and, and like, the artists that are making the most money, like, you know, the Taylor Swifts, um, all the big mega pop stars, you know, it's like they're, they're making money for mm-hmm. sure. You know, like they're yeah. getting billions of streams. Yeah. Um, but you know, for anything below that, it's, you know, there's really no one between you either making money or not making money. Yeah. And it would take some of those big artists to be like, you know, we're going to boycott this. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they're going to be willing to do that. You know, yeah. I don't think it'd make as much of a difference for anyone below that line, mm-hmm. but you know, it's, it's hard to say, man. It really is. Yeah. It's, it's tough. It's tough. Well, speaking of things that are on Spotify, uh, your new record Incubus eight is on, is on Spotify. Talk to me about this record. We started talking about it, uh, in the beginning, a little bit off air about how, what, so this record, you were saying that you want to, Re, sort of reinvent yourself but i'm guessing you're saying how can we reinvent ourselves but still sort of sound the same so we so our fans can still relate to this music correct um i mean yeah i mean i, I think no matter what we do if we are doing it as a unit mm-hmm. you know as a, a incubus will always sound like incubus right uh and 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 for us every record we put out is different from one to the next and every song is pretty much different from one to the next that we can't really go too far out of that general scope. And, and it sounds strange, you know, it's like, we've always, we've always sort of done that. Mm-hmm. Um, it just becomes harder and harder to do that with each record. Yeah. But I think, you know, put Brandon's voice on top of the music that we're writing, it's going to be incubus. Sure. It's really just a matter of like, for Brandon, I think he might have the most difficult part because he's got to write lyrics that connect with people and, and do it in a way that people can hear it, understand it and digest it. And that's, that's a art in and of itself, which is, I mean, that's gotta be, in my opinion, one of the hardest things to do. I, so I uh, that's so. the challenge, you know, Yeah. that's, that would, that's the challenge. And then, and then for us as a band, it's like, we can write music all day. Like that, that seems to come to us easier than anything else. Like put us together with our instruments and we're jamming, we're playing, we're writing new music. You know, it's like, we're, we're supposed to be rehearsing for South America next week. And we just want to write new music and spend our time <laughs> messing around with different ideas. Right. But, you know, again, that we've got that chemistry that's just sort of undeniable. Um, but again, now it's writing something that is interesting 
that is moving to us and we think will be interesting to the audience and then topping that off with like an amazing melody and, and lyrics, you know, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. we got, we got a great band and we got an amazing singer. Now it's like, you know, really doing something with those parts right. that means something, you know, how, what's the song, right? Do you guys write as a band? Um, yeah, the majority is, is us just sort of hashing it out in a room on our instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, this last record, Mike and Brandon spent a lot of time together just working on lyrics, um, melodies, and simple guitar parts, which is kind of, we've always sort of written records with like a simple A and B guitar line, you know, a couple of rhythms, throw it in the pot and we're all just jumping all over it. Um, this time Brandon spent a lot of time with Mike, uh, just sort of formulating basic ideas and like solid found foundation for you know the bed of the music mm-hmm. um and they just spent more time doing that probably six months to a year doing that wow. probably probably yeah closer to six months doing that and then once they had a, a handful of those then we got a room you know and just started building on top of that and and you know this is probably the shortest full-length record we had you know it's like nine proper songs and a couple interludes but um, you know, we were just like these, these songs we feel really, really good about. And we spent a lot of time just formulating them and playing them in every possible scenario. So, uh, we just felt really good and confident and, um, you know, we just, we just ran with those, with those nine songs that we had. Am I making this up or, but didn't you guys have, and I don't remember what record it was. Didn't you guys have do some, there was like some video and you guys were in like some mansion that, that you guys rented out and you were playing. Am I, am I making that up? Did you guys like- No, we wrote um, morning view in a, in a big house in Malibu off of morning view. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we were there for four and a half months. And during that time, uh, you know, we did, we did, what was it? Cribs on MTV when that was really popular. That's what uh, it was. Yeah, we did cribs. And then we just we did a whole bunch of stuff around that time because that's that's when Drive uh, became a number one single and just there was a lot of momentum going going in at the time. Um, so there was a lot of just filming and interviews and stuff all around that house while we were there. So it's, yeah. it's very prominent in a lot of that that footage of the time. I just remember that video for for some reason or that that uh that clip and like you talking about the drums and all it was just interesting. yeah and, just kind of and not up. only that one one of the singles wish you were here we we made a proper video for it um and that was right before 9-11 and the video is a take of uh head from the monkeys uh, a movie that the monkeys did mm-hmm. and they're sort of being chased by a group of people and they jump off of a bridge yeah um and so we, we took that idea and we jumped off a bridge, we fell into water and mermaids came and helped us, you know, get some air and whatever it was. And it was deemed unfit for public view because, you know, towers fell and people were jumping from the towers. Um, really? And so we had, to, we had to make a whole new video, which we ended up using just B video that we took from that whole recording process in Morning View. So a lot of the video from that song was the original was sort of the video part where we recreate, we, we recreated that head video 
and us performing. So we were only able to use that performance part. And then we coupled that with a lot of the live footage stuff from that house. Wow. So in that video, there's a lot of that house in there. That's interesting. That's, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I guess, I mean, I guess I can loosely see the connection of why they wouldn't want that, but yeah, I don't know. It, it made, it made no sense at all. Cause at the time M Eminem, you know, was huge. Uh-huh. Uh, it was just blowing up and, um, I forget the name of the song, but it's him actually jumping off of a building and singing while he's falling. And the building is right behind him. You can see if, you know, him just falling from this building, building singing the song and that wasn't un- that wasn't censored <laughs> but weird. us jumping off of a bridge into water into water with mermaids yeah. <laughs> yeah it just it made no sense whatsoever but anyways you know, <laughs> water under the bridge <laughs> yeah yeah uh, so i want to i want to be cognizant of your time but i want to ask you about i know that you're really into to cycling right yeah yeah for sure so um I, cause I am too. So I got it. I figured I should like, I should ask you some, some cycling questions really quick. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> what, what kind of cycling road, mountain bike road, only, only road. road. I've actually, road. I don't think I've ever been mountain biking. I think I had a mountain bike when I was younger. Um, but yeah. now, yeah, just, just road biking. I've recently moved to California. I used to live in the city in New York and there's nowhere yeah. to ride around there. So I didn't ride nah, for nah. a long time. And then city I came riding. out here. And I'm like, oh man, this is great. I can just get on my bike and and go. So it's it's a lot better. Yeah. Um. So is that is that just something that you do for fun? Are you in Are you in, you know, leagues or or are you racing or, or is it totally just for exercise no. and for fun? Yeah, it's just it's just a a, pa- a passion of mine. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's one of uh, another hobby that I've been doing for maybe five or six years, but really got into it probably the last three or four years. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like, I, it's sort of, it's sort of my, my therapy, my fitness, my kind of everything (laughs) all rolled into one, my, my reconnection with nature. Um, it's just sort of all of those things, you know, and, and the benefits that I gained from that physically, mentally, all of it just, you know, I, I just fell in love with it and I live in such an ideal place for, for cycling, you yeah, know, in the beautiful. Santa Monica mountains that <clears throat> I just, you know, I ride a few days a week and, um, I bring my bike on tour when I can. Uh, so all, all summer long, you know, I have my bike with me. I just, I break it down into a hard case and put it under the bus mm-hmm. and just ride at the venue. It's like, we're sitting there for half of the day, not doing anything. So right. I go out and explore the towns that we visit and without fail, I've found beautiful places to ride my bike in every single city we've been in. And it's funny, I've been going to these same sheds for the past 20 years mm-hmm. and have never left the shed either on the bus or in the dressing room, but I'm there, you know, yeah. and the last four or five years I've been leaving and just finding incredible places to ride your bike and just seeing, you know, kind of seeing parts of the U S on two wheels that I've never seen before. It's, it's quite, quite amazing and even though it's been hotter than hell yeah i know a lot of these places like i'm out there man i'm out there just you know exploring it's been it's been incredible well it's interesting because because i think the misconception is when you're on the road oh you get to see all these beautiful places no you don't you see you're on a bus you literally get off go to the venue sit there play the venue or play the show get back on the bus and go to the next town it's not like you're not out sightseeing in every you know in every town or anything yeah 
Yeah, exactly. The only time we really saw the States is when we were driving ourselves in a 15-passenger van for two years. Yeah. That we saw everywhere, and that was incredible, too. I mean, it was it was a lot of work and a lot of sleepless nights, but we actually saw the country, you know, mm-hmm. from, from coast to coast, and that was awesome. But now, you know, it's like, we, we can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. We don't, we don't want to do that. So I'm able to see parts of this, each, each, you know, place that we're in, you know, with my, with my bike. And, you know, it's like, I, and I feel, you know, it's like, I feel better after a bike ride and, and I play better. And just, you know, I think it just, it just helps everything in general, mentally, physically, and it just puts me in a good place, you know? That's great. It's cool. It's, it reminds me of sort of, you know, what you're talking about with the record of saying, okay, oh, you've been on tour for how many years, you know, and how many times have you done this? But it's just like a new way of seeing it now. It's a new way of, of touring. It's sort of this, you know, the same thing with the record. I'm sort of tying those two together. Yeah. Reinventing what you're yeah. doing because you're doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I I would recommend it to anybody. And it's, you know, for me, it's like, it's, you know, I get inspiration by just being out in those places, you know, mm-hmm. um, it, it, it alters my mood 100%. And it's, you know, I you could very much say I'm addicted to it, but I, that's there's no other real addiction I would rather have than to be on my bike. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like I tell people I ride 5,000 miles a year and they're just tripping out, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I, I dig it. Yeah. <laughs> you what's know? your what's your average ride? Like how many miles? Um, usually like 30 or 40 miles. OK. Um, I try to I try to get in 100 miles a week. Yeah. Um, it's kind of tough when I'm touring or, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm in the studio every day at noon or one. So it's like, I try to go for two or three hours, you know, three, three days a week, if I can, four days a week, if I can, mm-hmm. um, you know, before rehearsal, after I drop my daughter off from school, but you know, I, I'm, I'm doing 5,000 miles a year, you know, I'm, that's great. I'm, I'm staying pretty consistent, you know, nice. I might go for a bike ride today, actually. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I wish I could, man. Well, yeah, you can get out there tomorrow. Or whatever. So you're in the so you're in the studio now, right? You're 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 going every day and still working on some new stuff. Yeah, so we're rehearsing. We've had like a week and a half off, I think, from our U.S. leg. So mm-hmm. uh, now we're just in there, sort of prepping for a South America run, uh, which is two weeks. We leave next week, and then we have our final two weeks in the U.S. Uh, in October, first two weeks of October. So just preparing. Are you in, for that? And um, are you in California at all on that last leg? I know you guys were here. Are you? Do you guys hit California again? Uh, yeah, we got uh, the Santa Barbara Bowl. Oh, nice. that we're doing. Um, and we were trying to do another LA show, but I don't think that that's panning out. Uh, so right now we'll be, you know, we're in Nevada in Vegas, which is you know pretty close mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah know? uh so we do um we do that we're doing a show in colorado and then we do santa barbara Bowling. awesome i think i'm gonna go to, i'm gonna one, go to the santa barbara one more i haven't seen you guys in, yeah, in yeah, years so play. i think i'm gonna hit that up it's a rad it's a rad venue you know it's it's a smaller venue than than we've been playing but uh-huh. it's just such a serene beautiful place that it's always fun to go there and play shows awesome well, I'll, I will see you there. Um, 
So, and I suggest that anybody who wants to check out all the tour dates, obviously check out the record, um, but you can go to Incubus HQ to check that out. Uh, and if people want to connect with you on social and, and all that, what's the best way to do that? Um, Jose Pacias 2 is, you know, my Instagram account. Uh, uh, Jose Pacias uh, page uh, for Facebook. And then Jose A. Pacias on Twitter, you know, I'm, I'm pretty active on all of those sites. Cool. And I'll link up to all that in the, in the show notes so that, that people can find you. And, uh, Jose, I want to say, first of all, thank you for taking an hour out of your day to, to chat with me. I really do appreciate it. Uh, like I said, yeah, no problem. big fan of your playing big, big fan of Incubus. So this has been a real treat. I really do appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for your time, man. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll see you in Santa Barbara. Cool, man. I will definitely be there. All right, have a good day. Thanks again, Jose. I'll talk to you soon. So there you have it, the one and only Jose Pasillas. And you can get all the links for everything that we talked about by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 305. Also, be sure to check out the new record, Incubus 8. It's on Spotify, iTunes, all of that stuff. And they're on tour, so be sure to check them out as well. Also, if you want to stay in the loop for what's going on with Drummer's Resource, with the new podcast releases, we have a, we've been podcast every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Mondays are interviews, Wednesdays are the Daniel Glass Show, and Fridays are my either five-minute Fridays or an interview with another sort of industry professional or, or even some other drummers as well. So there's always something Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Also, on Mondays, I send out Nick's Monday Mix, which is a list of all the stuff that I'm interested in right now, some different links, some industry news, and also the latest podcast releases. And then on Friday, I do an email called That's a Wrap, and that'll give you everything that was released from Drummer's Resource that week, so you can always be in the know. You can sign up for that by just going to drummersresource.com. It's free, obviously, but you also get a copy of my ebook, Stick Control Variations. It's 11 creative exercises to help you with your speed, your chops and your independence. You can do that at drummersresource.com. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Peace.